1: Welcome to episode 145 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. You may notice that this episode is called Ella's Mom, and we just had an episode a few weeks ago called Ella's Mom and Dad. So just so you know, these are different Ellas. So our first Ella was a 13-month-old young girl from St. Louis, Missouri, And this Ella is a 23-year-old young woman from Paris, France. So their stories are very, very different, but both very unique and very special. So Ella's mom, Cassie, has been a longtime listener of the podcast, and I am so excited to get to know her and to hear about Ella's story. As a little bit of a reminder, if you would like to be on the podcast and tell your child's story, please email me at Marcy, M-A-R-C-Y at andysmom.com I love to hear from people and hear about their children and talk to them about their children it's just such a blessing to me so whether you want to be on the podcast or you don't want to be on the podcast still feel free to email me at any time but for now I want you to sit back and enjoy listening to Cassie, Ella's mom (music) Thank you so much, Cassie, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you.
2: Thank you, Mercy. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for me and all these other people out there that are in our situation.
1: I was mentioning you to you earlier before we started recording that when I look at my statistics, I can see where people are, mm-hmm. where they're listening from all around the world. And I've had this very faithful listener in Paris, France, for a long time. And for an extremely long time, I had no idea who that faithful listener was. Mm -hmm. But it turns out, it is you. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a beautiful thing to get that first email from you. And I thought, oh, that's who it is. I mean, I occasionally have more than one, but... There's always one that's just really quite faithful. And now I know who that is. So that's nice. And now I would love for you to talk about your daughter, Ella, and just to let us get to know her a little bit.
2: Okay. Well, first of all, I'm American. My husband's French, Mm -hmm. but I've been living in France for 31 years now. So actually long, more than half my life. We have four kids. Ella was our second child. So we had Mm -hmm. two daughters, two sons, and Ella was born in 1996 and was a, it's funny when you look back now that I have quite a number of years of examining Mm -hmm. what it's like to have children and watch them grow up. Ella was just a magnificently healthy baby in every way, but there were things, I don't want to sound too woo-woo but there were little signs i feel like from the very beginning the first one being that something was going to happen the first one being that when i was seven months pregnant with her my doctor says "Mm, i'm a little concerned about the spacing between her eyes i want to do an amniocentesis you can imagine the panic that goes on when you're you know a mother and They want to do an amnio and that would have been in the month of August when all of France is closed down because everybody goes on vacation. And so we went ahead and do it, did it because we just, you know, you don't know what to do. I couldn't even think about it, what it meant one way or the other, what implications, the whole thing was just overwhelming, but I was just following the doctor's orders.
1: And you would have worried for two months awful, incessantly, right? I mean, there was, once he put it out there, it would have been
2: difficult, I think. It was very difficult. It it took two weeks to get the results. So after two Uh weeks, we knew that there was nothing, or Uh we thought there was nothing. My, we'll think differently now after knowing what's happened. But, but yeah. So that was that was the way Ella started her life, and then she was born, and she was couldn't have been healthier, and she was this really sort of voracious, interesting, interested, smart kid that wanted to do everything she was very intense she was always a bit different in the sense that she she marched to her own drumbeat shall we say and she was never really Uh influenced by what everybody around her was doing in a very good and healthy way and she she was really smart everybody's kid is really smart but we always found her (laughs) particularly smart she was the kid in France when you're little you they, they do this very lovely thing in schools. They have you draw a little man starting when you're very little. And in France, you can mm-hmm. start school at about two and a half. And Ella started school. She would only go in the mornings, two and a half. And she was the kid that when everybody else was drawing the arms coming out of the head, she would draw a full body and she would understand the way the body <laughs> you know, was structured. <laughs> that was maybe an indication of what we would come to know as an extraordinarily creative and artistic personality and talent.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: She was original in everything. She was original in the way she dressed. She was original in the way she did her hair. She was original in the way that she thought about things. And she was, I don't know, she was, she would, she would write you a letter and her the letter wouldn't just be a letter that had either been handwritten or typed. It would be a letter that would be There would be drawings all over it and there would be all these clever things left, right and center. And then she would make the envelope herself. And so she went on and she, you know, she had an extremely easy time at school. She took great pleasure in that because everything was so easy. She never really had to had to work very hard at school.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: She's never one of these competitive kids. She always put the bar incredibly high for herself, but it was herself against herself she was she would love to share her knowledge with other people and talk about things and so she she ended up being a true intellectual as well in the sense that she you know she was interested in movies she really knew about movies and she could tell you about the movies she could tell you about the director she could tell you about things that other kids were just enjoying the movie but ella was like really into it she wasn't always easy. She was very stubborn. She had her way of doing things. She had a her her aesthetic was impossible to describe. Everybody that knew her knew that Ella had a special aesthetic and everybody, well, I can't say everybody, but many many people really respected her take on things. They might not have wanted to dress that way themselves, but it was always interesting and she was mm-hmm. known to be one of these kids and that that's a feedback that we got from a number of her friends um, after she died is that she was the one that made it okay to be yourself and inspired kids her friends to try to figure out who they were and that it was okay they didn't need to conform and 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 be like everybody else and so she was
1: that's amazing she was a
2: she was a, a very special person yeah
1: you know it's funny that you say that because i do tell parents this all the time that come in and and are kind of upset that their kid is you know stubborn and strong-willed and all of this and i'll say this is going to do them so well when they're older Mm -hmm. because The other kids won't push them around and they will find their own way and find their own path and can be hard to parent those kids sometimes, but it's amazing to see them as adults, I think.
2: It can make Mm -hmm. their lives more difficult too, I think, Mm -hmm. because if you can follow, if there's a rule book that you embrace and you follow, um, you'd ask yourself fewer questions. Ella Mm -hmm. was always asking herself questions and she overthought things and... But when she would overthink things and she would share her thoughts, they always sort of made sense. She always, she taught me so much from you know from all different angles, be it, you know, just about, say, I don't want to say just movies, because she had many different Artists, for example, she had an encyclopedia knowledge of, of artists. And we you go to an exhibit with her and we would, you know we went to lots of exhibits with the kids when they were little, and we'd go through the exhibit. And then Ella, we'd like, Ella, you, know, we're going to meet you at the cafe down the street because Ella would need more time because she really looked at everything. But she was also she knew a huge amount about pop culture. I mean, she was <laughs> when she was younger, it must have been around 10 or eight, 9, 10, 11, something like that. She had this extraordinary fascination with Hillary Duff. I don't know if you remember. Okay. Like, uh-huh. I do. He knew everything about Hilary Duff. And so, <laughs> and so it could be, I mean, up until when she died, she would teach me about popular culture, too. So she had a, a, a really vast array of interests. And when she would have an idea about something and you say, I don't quite agree, she, she would m- more often than not sort of talk you through it. And then you would sort of see why she might have yeah. been right. <laughs> But I don't want to paint her as, a, as, a, uh, as perfect, because she wasn't. She could be difficult. Yeah. And life became more difficult for her as she got older, because she she sailed through, through high school. But by sort of the end of high school, she decided she didn't really want to study certain things that didn't interest her. And all of my kids, as I said, they're, they're half French. They were always in a French school. And then when they got older, we put them in a bilingual school. And she ended up doing the international baccalaureate, which I know exists in many schools as well in the US. And she had to study physics. And she wasn't remotely interested in physics, even though, strangely enough, she I'm jumping back and forth in time, but I feel like that happens in a situation, yeah. like all it all becomes the yeah. same time. It doesn't matter if it was 20 years ago or, or three years ago. Well, she was the kid when she was little. I can remember my husband asking a bunch of little kids, so What's the biggest number in the world? And the kids would be like, Well, it's you know three gazillion bazillion blah 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 blah. And Ella just looked at me and said, What are you talking about? There is no bigger number. You can always add one. And so <laughs> said, yeah, you're right, Ella. I hadn't even thought about myself. <laughs> and she was she was very wise, she was very loyal, incredibly loyal person. Mm -hmm. she would think about another memory that comes to mind that was just so extraordinary. I remember she was, she would have been 10 or 11 and she just changed schools from, you know, the little elementary school to go into middle school. She was still just in the French system at that point. And she had her very, very best friend and they'd gone to the same school together. And then at that age, kids start to change and some mature Mm -hmm. faster than others. And Ella had a crush on this boy in a class and this friend of hers who she thought to be her, you know, BFF, decided to tell the class or tell some other people about this crush that was just, it was so mortifying to Ella. She felt completely and utterly betrayed.
1: Oh no. Yeah.
2: I I remember it just, I mean, I cried with her. I mean, the whole thing was just so sad. And then I can remember, I don't know whether it was six months after something like that, I I was in her bedroom giving her a kiss goodnight. And she says to me, you know, mom, I'm thinking about, forgiving Louise, that was her friend. And then we had this whole discussion about forgiveness and what forgiveness meant. And I was like, my God, Ella, you're making me, the adult, think about what what forgiveness really is. It was just, she played on many different levels and her mind was always working. And on another level, I think that did make life more complicated for her because she couldn't just like go about her business and do her thing.
1: Just follow the rules.
2: Follow the rules, yeah. So back to the physics thing, that was the other thing. She didn't like physics. And so I can remember going with her to the physics teacher, and she hadn't done any work all year. I was like, Ella, the teacher says, Ella, do you need to pass physics in order to go on to college and to get your high school diploma? And she gives this little funny smile out of the corner of her mouth. She goes, yeah. And he was like, well, do something about it. We had 10 days before the end of the school year. And so then Ella, in the space of 10 days, learned the physics course. In order to pass the physics, in order to get that part of the IB together and then to move on. She was just, she was like that. She was very strong-willed. And when she put her mind to something, she she got what she needed or wanted. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you want to go on now and talk about what happened with her illness?
2: Yes. So Ella... I've forgotten a big part of her life. I just want to mention Japan was a huge part oh, of her life. Oh,
1: Japan. Okay. Yeah,
2: but I'll come back to that actually talking. Well, she went off to college. She went off to the University of Chicago and studied okay. here there and decided it wasn't the right place for her. Came back to Paris, didn't know what to do. Decided to go off to a place called Shikoku, which is an island with 88 temples on it. That is a, pil- a pilgrimage place for mm-hmm. Japan. Japanese people has been for I don't know how many hundreds of years and she went and did that pilgrimage came back and decided okay I'm going to go and study Japanese and do that in London so she went off to London and and she did her course at London and at SOAS the School of Asian and Oriental Studies and then finished the program although she hadn't finished all the work and I somehow feel like this is related to what then happened she she finished Mm -hmm. in two 2019. And we said, well, Ella, you know, we're not going to support you living in London. If you're not in school, you know, you're going to have to get a job. And so she came back to to Paris and she lived at home at the end of, end of June, beginning of July, 2019, got herself a job. Mm-hmm. She still had a few outstanding papers that she was supposed to work on. She just couldn't get them done. And it was just unimaginable to us because she had so much, she was a beautiful writer. She had so much knowledge in her head, you know, what was going on? Why couldn't she finish these? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So, but she went and she worked at a bookstore and she liked it in the beginning because it was easy. She didn't have to think about what she was doing in life. And then by the end of November, she started having headaches and didn't really think that much about them because she thought, oh, I'm spending too much time on the computer. And yeah, she had a couple of episodes of seeing double, but the seeing double was something that reminded her of a period in her life when she was six years old, when she was seeing double, where we thought she had a brain tumor. And I'd taken her to doctors everywhere in France and the US, and we did tests left, right, and center, and nothing showed up. Mm-hmm. So it was the same symptom. She didn't really think about it and went on with her life and she continued working and then Christmas time rolled around and she, before that she, she had a little bit of a blockage in her nose. And so we thought, okay, maybe it's a, you know, probably a sinus infection. So she went to one doctor, sure. the doctor gave her antibiotics, didn't do anything. Another doctor antibiotics didn't do anything. A third doctor. This is a nasty, nasty sinus infection. She, we spent Christmas together and then she went back to work And I think it was on your, you know, if you remember the dates, the very specific dates, it was on the, on the 4th of January, she went to work in the morning, came back in the afternoon. She said, you know, my head hurts too much. I can't, I can't go back to work. And I was like, you know, Ella, this is, we've got to notch it up a bit and figure out really what's going on with this sinus infection. And so we took her to, we ended up finding a doctor. She ended up finding a doctor in the middle of the night online. Now in France finding a doctor on a Saturday because that was a Friday finding a doctor on a Saturday is almost an impossible feat but she managed to do it we went to the doctor he looks at her and says ooh really bad 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 you need to we need to do a little scan maybe to make sure this isn't going to go into meningitis and from that day on it went I was like meningitis I somehow some some bigger power was helping us to get a scan that day on Saturday yes at the right. scan and the doctor reading the scan said, this is the nastiest, nastiest uh, sinus infection. But we had another appointment already scheduled for the Monday. Another ORL uh, went to him and he said, mm, this might be the tip of an iceberg and got us into immediately like the next day to see a sinus expert who said, I'm gonna have to biopsy this. And we didn't know what was going on. All we knew is that Ella had a really nasty sinus infection. We did the biopsy and then from we got the results 10 days later, from that moment on, it was one emergency after the other. It was an extremely rare, and it's off the charts, rare tumor. I'll give you the official name, SMARC-B1 SMARC deficient sinonasal carcinoma, which has SMARC-B1 being the one and only gene that was mutated in it, um, which happens also to be the pretty much the one and only gene mutated in rhabdoid tumors, which you probably have okay. heard about, which in the cell is yep. very, very rare pediatric.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Hers happened to be in her sinus. And wow, by the time it was diagnosed, and they were very quick in the diagnosis, actually, she was, the, the pain went from being bad to absolutely intolerable. She was on morphine starting by the end of January in pill form. And then intravenously by the beginning of February, started the chemo immediately, which of course didn't do anything. In fact, the chemo, there's sort of a suspicion now that maybe the chemo, the tumor cells were able to get around the chemo and become even more aggressive. Radiation had absolutely no effect at all. There was one experimental drug that we through connections we have in New York, cause we also, we had, she was treated here in Paris But we also had people at Sloan Kettering in New York weighing in and and following the treatment and agreeing on everything. We were able to get that medication for her, but she was too sick to take it. She was gone three and a half months. Wow.
1: So fast.
2: So it was sort of, and I think about, I think about this, you know, often we parents that have lost children, you know, is it worse, an accident or illness or whatever? And one of my other kids had said to me, you know, it's a little bit like Ella was at the crossroads of the two. It was an accident
1: yeah.
2: and an illness at the same time. It all went right so fast. And it was just one emergency after another, after another, after another.
1: Yeah. And you
2: feel like you just blink.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: She died on the 24th of April, 2020. Which means that we were, this was all happening at the beginning of COVID. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, for us in our situation was, like a blip on the, on the screen, because it was, Ella was what we were so focused on, obviously, but we, in one way, it was a positive for us in the treatment because to get her to the hospital back and forth, there was no traffic. There was nobody in the hospital aside from the patients and the doctors. And, but it was, it was a nightmare. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It certainly was. It certainly was. It's hard to wrap your head around it when it happens so quickly like that too i think you're absolutely right that it's really a, almost a combination of the people that have to watch this low suffering that i've you know spoken to quite a few of those and then those of us who just in an instant
2: it's um, it's all over and it never occurred to me i mean i knew because i you know i i, I read and investigate things myself and i knew back in january that this was terminal. I only knew that. I only knew that I knew that in retrospect, when I went, I have a therapist that I had seen in the past that I'd gone and seen at the very beginning when Ella was first diagnosed. And she was the one that had, that reminded me that on the 20th of January, I knew this was terminal. But when Ella was sick, I completely and utterly put that that was not even an issue. My daughter was not dying. It wasn't possible. And that's it. It becomes... It's, it's just not possible and it was not possible after she died that she actually died and I still very often this is just not possible what's happened
1: yeah yeah it's just hard to wrap your head around it mm-hmm.
2: you know, I think we all feel that way no it's just how how could this be it makes no sense
1: mm-hmm. so were they forthright with you the the treating team about the fact that it was terminal or or Did they avoid it? I'm just kind of curious.
2: They avoided it. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the cancer that she had is that it's not, you know, a lot of oncologists have never heard of it. They've never heard of this particular mutation. Sure. She was initially hospitalized in an adult ward because she was 23. Mm -hmm. After the first chemo, we finished the first chemo session. Yeah. They came and met with us with people from pediatrics because they had understood that this was more like a rhabdoid tumor than the regular head and neck tumor and so they put us in pediatrics which was given the COVID context a huge gift to us because otherwise i wouldn't have been able to be with her right which i was able to be with her my husband no only one of us was allowed to go in but i was able to be with her 24 7 when she was hospitalized
1: right and that wouldn't have happened had she been in the adult
2: I mean, I, I can't even, I can't even go there in my head thinking about my God, if she were facing that on her own, but they no, they never, they never did. And the only time that Ella knew is the bottom line. She knew we never talked about it Mm -hmm. with her because a, it was unimaginable and B, you know, (laughs) it just, it was unimaginable. And I, I, I knew nothing about death i mean honestly i i you know i'm one of these blessed people that up until the age of 55 i'd never experienced anything like this any kind of real loss of anybody the last time we went into the hospital was the only time that it was really addressed and ella it was extraordinary because she she knew what was going on she had the night before she went into the hospital for the last time and i just want to take a little parent parenthesis and talk about how she she was so dignified throughout she really she i think dignified would be the word calm dignified she'd said to us at one point i don't know if i want to live if i'm going to go blind which she did go blind because it just when it was diagnosed it was already in her meninges and it took away the the, her vision on her left side and then started taking away the and on the your flight.
1: sinuses are all so close to the eyes <sighs>
2: it's so awful it's yeah it's just and the pain was controlled because she was on such extraordinarily heavy pain medication which didn't and that was an interesting thing you know i've got i've learned so much but when you have such pain and you're taking these medications the medication just goes to the pain it doesn't didn't affect her personality it was just mm-hmm. controlling the pain. She never on the scale of one to 10 said she hurt more than a three. I mean, she was, <laughs> And I don't think she was saying that to make us feel better. I think it was really very, very well controlled. But the night before she went into the hospital for the last time, which we thought we were going in to decide whether or not to continue the chemo because she was still coming and joining us for dinner at that point. She couldn't eat anything because every time she would move, she would throw up because of the The pressure and, uh, but she would come down to the table. She would dress and come down to the table. She was extraordinary. Ella, as I said, her whole relationship to clothes and to all that was, it was unlike other people. Like she would dress to go to her radiation (laughs) sessions before that. And not just your average outfit. I mean, she had this, she spent every penny she'd saved during the time she was working and she bought herself these wild hats. And this one was big one with feathers on it, these big black feathers. And we have these photographs of her the last time she came to dinner before going into the hospital. But that night, so we all had dinner together. I went to bed. My eldest daughter, Zoe, went up with her to the bedroom and they sat there and she played for Zoe a Nina Simone song, which is, I wish I knew how it would be to be free, which in retrospect, we understood was her telling us that she was Dying,
1: ready to be free.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a song that gives a tremendous amount of hope. I'm going to send you the the lyrics to it because it's just so absolutely beautiful. But then she went in the next day into the hospital. We went in. We met with the doctor. She was starting to have all sorts of neurological, other neurological problems, like numbness in her chin and her hand. And our doctor didn't say anything. We go. They thought, oh, and she had a she had a little um, a little hard gland like thing on her neck. And we go into the hospital night to say to the doctor, we absolutely must biopsy that. I mean, I was still, you know, very much in, you know, what we're taking care of this, we're gonna make her better. And he was like, oh, I don't know when I push and I push and I push next thing. I knew we did that little biopsy. They brought her down for the biopsy. And because it was COVID, I was able to, I mean, I was literally, I wasn't in the room where they did the biopsy, but I was where you couldn't usually be in normal times mm-hmm. because there was nobody else in the hospital and the doctor comes out and says, well, we did a scan of her lungs and we're not quite sure what it is. And I was like, oh, he said, well, it might be COVID. So then they put us in a, in a COVID room which meant that I wasn't oh, right. able to leave the room. She obviously wasn't able to leave the room. No chance of my husband seeing her.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, where she went from extremely bad to dying in the space of, we went in on a Thursday, and she died eight days later. Wow. And the only time that was, what was happening was ever talked about was she'd said to the doctors, it would have been on, a t- on the Tuesday before she died. She says, well, what are the next steps? And the doctor who was not her main doctor, but the doctor that was on duty, and I will be forever grateful to this woman. She said, well, Ella, we've done everything we can. And yeah. now you need to look inward. I don't remember how she said it exactly, but it was very beautiful. And Ella understood. Yeah, I didn't even understand. I think she understood. And at that point, they let my husband and our other kids into the hospital. So we were all with her when she died.
1: Well, that's a blessing at least to have gotten that.
2: It was a blessing. I tell you, she, she gave so many what she, so the last night, the second to last night, my husband was allowed to stay with Ella and me in the room. And then the Thursday night, the night before she died, Zoe, my eldest, she she and I both felt that Ella wanted a a girl's night. And so Zoe stayed in the hospital in the room with us.
1: Yeah.
2: And Ella was not talking at that point. I remember stepping out of the room, all of it sort of a blur, but stepping out of the room and asking the nurses, well, so how am I going to know when something's happening? What's so strange is that I still, it still wasn't possible. My daughter was dying, but I was able to I was living it on two levels. So I go out and I talk with the nurses and they explain to me, well, her breathing will start changing. And, and I was like, oh, okay, okay. Then I go back into the room and sure enough, at six in the morning, her breathing started to change. I call my husband and I said, I think you need to come now. And he woke up the boys and, and they were there 45 minutes later. But in the interim, Ella, who had, she was extremely, she, she had gone blind, but was extremely photosensitive at the same time. And so she, well, at that point, she wasn't moving, but she, her eyes had been closed for two days, but she'd been wearing sunglasses for, you know, the six weeks before that. Between the time I called my husband and they arrived, I was next to her on the bed looking at her. She, She literally hadn't moved for 48 hours. She opened her eyes enormously like this. And she looked at me. She looked through me. It was The most extraordinary thing I've ever experienced. It's actually changed my yeah. That's part of what's changed my whole approach, vision, understanding as much as we can to our existence and our it was incredible. Incredible. Yeah.
1: It reminds me very much of when my own mother died. I I see so many parallels. Between you being with her and me being with my mother and, and that fact of not really being told and things like that. I, I mean, I think back, I was 19 years old and, and the yes. nurses took me out. And I've shared this before in the podcast, but long ago, so many probably haven't heard it. But I went out of the room because they called me out and they said, you shouldn't be here by yourself because your mom could die at any time. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know and she didn't know. And I recently was talking to medical professionals about kind of how to talk with grieving families. And I, I said that the thing is, is that I was shocked that my mother was dying, and the nurses were shocked that I didn't know.
2: Mm-hmm. And this disconnect right. was just extraordinary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was just extraordinary, right? They had no idea that I didn't know that she was dying. And, and then I walked back in and my mom looked at me and she said, I'm dying, aren't I? And I said, yes, you are. And I thought at that moment, because, you know, I was in the midst of applying to medical school and things like that. And I thought, man, those people screwed up. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what they were doing. They clearly had been taught this at one time and they all forgot Like, no, this, and I thought, I'm never going to let this happen. I am going to be so comfortable talking about death Mm -hmm. because it's totally wrong to have a 19-year-old girl have to tell her mother that she's dying, right? That is wrong. And everyone can say that is wrong. But I have to say, as I went on in my medical training, I realized it's not that they forgot. It's that they were never taught. They no one ever taught them what to do and how to do it and it's just somehow supposed to magically like happen that they can feel comfortable talking about this and that's why it's like my new mission now is to feel like I need to educate medical professionals so they're not so scared of it and so they can talk to people and so then the experiences you have and the experiences I have are not the same right and, and I don't Think about that, like the fact that you should have known
0: mm-hmm.
1: more
2: earlier than you didn't yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. I often think about these doctors wandering around the halls of the hospital. Thinking, uh-huh. Do you realize that these patients lying in bed that could be you? It's like, the, yeah, it, it, it's a strange. I mean, maybe it's a way you survive as well as a doctor, but yeah, they don't have any power. But you yeah. know these things happen to all of us and yeah i yeah i have have no tolerance for people not being i i i have sort of taken it upon myself to educate the layperson. i'm not a medical professional yeah. but i talk about it i talk about it a lot
1: well i think to back to that time. So my mom was being taken care of by a cardiology team at that point in time, because the chemotherapy had actually caused her to go into heart failure. Mm. So I mean, she was dying from cancer, but what ultimately killed her was the heart failure from the chemotherapy. So she had a cardiology team who really she did not know well. And I remember very vividly a conversation with them saying, well, Mrs. Peterson, you'd be a perfect candidate for a heart transplant, except that you have metastatic cancer. And so you can't get a heart transplant if you have cancer and I think now in hindsight they thought they told us she was dying Mm -hmm. by saying that statement like you need a new heart we can't give you a new heart thus you are dying but they never said thus you are dying Mm -hmm. they never ended that they just assumed that we would realize that if she can't get a heart transplant that means she's going to die but in our minds it was like okay yeah, she really would need a new heart to get back to normal, but there are these medications and they'll make her heart stronger and she'll certainly be out by Christmas. And mm-hmm. I mean, never in my mind did I think, well, that means this is the end. Yeah. And I think they thought they told us. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they would have thought that, right? It's just that disconnect and not really understanding each other and knowing what's but this under
2: there. they also that element of, uh, you know, a doctor's a doctor's job is to keep people alive. So when somebody dies on the yes. level, it's a failure. And right, even though this, but yeah,
1: everyone dies. Everyone and dies. does. That mean you that know? somebody screwed up every single time somebody dies? No, absolutely, it does not mean that.
2: Everyone does die. It's as human as being born, and we can't be here <laughs> right. to die if we're not born. And so, yeah, there's a. Do you know what? There's a doctor. I've, I mean, I've I've read so many different things and I'm, I'm going to put together a bibliography at some point it might be useful to somebody who approaches yeah. you know these horrible situations in the same way but for me it was essential to read everything watch everything listen to every podcast anything I could get my hands on and there's one doctor that I just find extraordinary named Dr. Christopher Kerr who is okay. the head of a can't remember, Buffalo some huge hospice center in Buffalo New York And he tells a story and I might've heard it when I was hearing him. He's done a number of different things. By the way, he's done some very interesting studies on end of life experiences, but that's, we don't have time to talk about everything. But he talks about when he first arrived as an intern in, in, it must've been in a palliative care uh, place that some patient came in. It was somebody who had AIDS, who was quite ill and was put in the room. And he says to the nurse, "You know, do X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. And the nurse looked at him and said, That man's dying. He said, no, no, no. Give him X, Y, and Z. She said, no, he's dying. He's having these deathbed visions and and all sorts of different things. She said, I think you missed that class in school. And that changed this fellow's entire career. And
1: yeah,
2: I do think it's also just too hard for so many people to talk about. And therefore, they avoid it.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And it's easy for them to say they assume that, you know, we the family understood. But but No we don't understand because it's not possible that somebody you love so much cannot, will no longer be there. It just, yeah, it it
1: is. It's just impossible to accept. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that there are days, you know, for me, even now three and a half years later, there are days when I still feel like this can't be my life. This can't be what's happened to me. Like it just doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't
2: make any Mm -hmm. sense. No.
1: Yeah. So talk a little bit about your grief journey and the fact that this all started with COVID, yeah. how that kind of impacted it, because I would think that would have had a major impact. I mean, were you able to do like funeral thing this, like you normally would have been able to or anything like that?
0: Well,
2: what we did is we we did a, we were allowed 20 people, family included, okay. Ella included, mm-hmm at the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, where she's buried. So about 10 days after she died, we did a ceremony there with my husband's brother who lives in Paris and and his children and a a few of our friends. We have two very close sets of friends who also had lost children. Really? For very different reasons, but um, yeah, I have an extreme, wow. I, uh, well, actually I have two extremely close girlfriends who have one, a, a friend from childhood who lives in the U S and another friend that I've met here as an adult in Paris who have lost both lost daughters, but there are two friends that are two groups of friends, couples that in Paris were came as well. So we did a little something there. And then I don't know what the next six months year were. I mean, it's all a blur.
1: Yeah. A blur. hmm
2: I was I was somehow held up by my, my, my kids, my husband by, by a few friends. I, I really don't know. What we always felt very strongly about is that we needed to do a proper celebration of ElLA. Yeah We initially and that was my husband because he's as I think some I won't say all, but a lot of men are they deal with things through action. He yes. with a um, a friend of his reproduced one of Ella's works, an extraordinary little book that unfolds like an accordion, and okay. reproduced that, and we sent that out to everybody as a, as a little gift from Ella, and then we just exactly a month ago on the twenty fourth of April, twenty twenty two, did the celebration of Ella's life. I dreaded it with every boat. Two years. Because it was always because we have friends uh, put a little all over, yeah. you know, and I, you know, the right, family, right. and
1: and travel would have been impossible for a long,
2: long time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Impossible, absolutely impossible. So we did that on we did that a month ago, and it was it was very beautiful from what I could remember. I was, yeah. you know, it was. I, I mean, I was just I was so scared. To go through it again it's not like i don't live with this pain all day long every single day but the idea of mm-hmm. the ceremony but i am so i'm it was so clearly the right thing to do to give her yes. friends a place to come yeah you know young people today i mean they so many have no place to express to share their emotions to yeah so yeah that's what we that's what that's what we did and I had my family come over. My brother managed to get COVID. And so he got to stay an extra week. He couldn't go back to the States. But uh, <laughs> but the rest, but his wife and children and my mother were able to go back. My father actually died at the end of January of this year. And so we've, as a family, have been dealing with a, a lot of a loss. Yeah, a lot of grief. In a very short period of time. But I want to just say another thing, which is how how everything can be so Life is so strange. My father was quite ill, and he had a couple of crises where he was in the hospital for like a couple of weeks. And for me, it was um, the first one would have been in March of 2021, so less than a year after Ella died. And I flew over to the states. I'd actually already had COVID myself at that point, so I wasn't at all worried about giving it to anybody. I yeah. literally had had it, you know, several weeks before, and so I was the I was the person in the hospital. I was his advocate. It was very, very important to me. I mean, I yeah. I'd spent so much time in the hospital. It was sort of what I knew how to do, and I I could help him. And, and we had some just extraordinary conversations. And then the same thing happened. He went back to the hospital back in December of, of last year. And one of the conversations we had, he was he was really dying at that point. He said, uh, my father was a very rational, very, he was a lawyer and very rational. And didn't yeah. Too he said at one point, and my mother was there, so I wasn't just myself making it up. He said, you know, it's, I've had three nights in a row. It's just been so hard in my head. I've been going to this place. I don't know where it is, but it's, it's not this world. It's not another world. You really have to know the guy to understand how strange it is that he would speak this. He said it was somewhere in between and it was so, so hard. And I had the presence of mind because of all the reading and and investigating I've done to ask him questions like, dad, was there anyone there that you knew? And long pause. I said, well, the people from the hospital, I didn't want to lead them into anything. It was like a long pause. And he finally said, Ella was there. I said, dad, well, he said she was there. She wasn't my she was like she wasn't my granddaughter, and I wasn't her grandfather. She was there, and I was like, "What the hell was she?" I mean, I was anything. I was just drinking as every word. I was like, "Was she happy? Was she safe?" And he said, "Yeah, she was just doing her thing." Yeah. I mean, that was the biggest gift I ever could have received. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was. That is that is a gift.
2: And I. I feel like that's a gift for everybody. Yeah, you know, I don't want to keep that one to myself because this is it could have been anybody. Maybe he was seeing other. Maybe maybe he was seeing Andy. I mean, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think too when you shared that Ella you know, who'd had her eyes closed and not been awake at all when she opened her eyes and looked past you. That, that reminds me of when my mother died minutes before she died. Actually, she hadn't known me for two days. She hadn't been able to say my name. She sort of knew her parents a little bit, but hadn't, hadn't said anything to me. And we were getting her up because she said she kind of had to go to the bathroom. And so we're trying to get her up. And she looked up I still remember she looked up off to the right into the, like the corner of the room but she wasn't looking at that and she just got this wide eyed look on her face of just awe oh, and she so just said she said oh Marcy oh. and I could tell she was seeing the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen in her life and I got the gift of her last word out of her mouth was my name oh it's so beautiful because then she started that kind of agonal breathing, the end breathing, and and she died. But the last thing was that look off into her, seeing something amazing, and just wanting to tell it to me, even though she hadn't known who I was for two days. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it and it was such a blessing to me. I'm I I think it, I feel like it was meant for me to be the one to see that. Mm-hmm because of Andy dying so many years later I mean obviously I was in college I hadn't met my husband there was no thought of children there was no thought of anything but for me then to lose my Andy and to think of him seeing that beauty with his grandma who we never met is just really powerful yeah yeah So anyway, I feel like that's what Ella was looking at, too, don't you think? It was
2: truly extraordinary. And I, you know, being a very rational person, too, I, you know, I I looked into whatever they call that adrenaline rush that that people sometimes have before they die. My daughter was not having an adrenaline rush. It was something so much bigger than that. And it was, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was incredible.
1: Yeah, incredible and it is it is a gift. Yeah. There's no question it's a gift. It's something I will keep with me forever and ever. Yeah. And it gives me a little bit of comfort even now. And and also you know thinking of them together just as I'm sure you think of Ella and your dad together in in that way as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a little bit about you did this just a month ago? I wonder, I think to myself that some things that can hold up your grieving process a little bit. And one for me certainly was the court stuff. And until the court stuff was done, I felt like I couldn't really start to grieve. So it took me almost that year before I felt like I could start. Do you feel like having this now celebration of Ella has given you something that you've been kind of waiting for and lacking, you think? I mean, it might be too early to
2: tell in some ways. Yeah, I don't. One thing that I—it's not answering this question, that question at all. One thing that I do (laughs) find very peculiar is that I feel like Ella died truly yesterday. I mean, it was really yesterday. I feel like the celebration of her life could have been a long time ago. What seems so recent is Ella's dying. Yeah. Well, with my husband, we've set up uh, an association, and we. We're dedicating a lot of time, a lot of thought, and a lot of personal resources as well um, into something that we had been working on before the celebration. I do feel like now I can really focus more on that. So I think it has.
1: Yeah.
2: But I think on, on on the level, I think I so dreaded and and was so pleased that COVID kept us from doing that celebration because I yes. so feared yeah. that that would be. Like that's really acknowledging what happened. Yeah. In a way that I, I see that. I, I I couldn't even begin to. But you know, it was so. Having all those people there and all these people that travel for so far away. You know, some came for, you know, two nights, from across the ocean to be there. It was just. It was. It was so. It, it it's so. It gave me the opportunity to do what I I really what was most important to me. I I didn't think I'd be able to speak, and I did speak. And what I wanted to convey was how among all the many, many, many gifts that Ella has given us, and me and all of us, is she's truly given given me the the gift of understanding how connected we all are and how people. We hold one another up when we don't think we can go any farther. We have this net and this net extends not just on this physical earth. It's a lot bigger than that for me, Mm -hmm. you know, it crosses time zones. It crosses worlds. Yeah. The other world, the before world, whatever. And it, it was so beautiful. And then to have all of these people there and to be able to, to thank them and to oh, yeah. and 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 what's so what was very what struck me is ella ella would write a lot as well and she'd written this one piece on beauty because beauty was something that she thought a lot about and the meaning of beauty and this experience encapsulated that for me and I actually wrote it down because I want to get her words right
1: yeah yeah
2: the it was just the last sentence it was a very personal piece she'd written but the last sentence was the only thing that means anything at all is excruciating beauty, if only you can find it. And that was, ex- it was excruciatingly beautiful, that experience. Yeah. And it was like, yeah. my God, I like you. That, wow, I love that phrase. Like, she doesn't, she never stops teaching me. She never, <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah. So... Yeah, it gives me, I mean, what the, the foundation that we've, we've, the first goal of our foundation, what we, you know, our, our initial reaction was, you know, we need to fund researchers,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, people that are doing things, trying to understand this horrible one mutation. It's, I won't even go into the details because I get all tangled up when I try to talk about it, but it's a mutation that is, it's a tumor suppressor gene that mutated called SMARCB1. And it was first discovered 25 years ago by a researcher here in France. And there are a few people that work on it. The problem is there are very, very few known cases of tumors that are driven by this particular mutation. Although this mutation does show up in a lot of cancers, but down the road in like 20% of all cancers down the road. Uh Um, Anyway, so we started out thinking we're going to find a researcher and we're going to you know, help them with their work. And then the more people we spoke with, and we spoke with a lot of people here in the US, we came to understand that actually what would be more impactful as a first effort would be to host with the major researchers here in France a conference for the people that work on this mutation uh-huh. and the complex, the genetic part of the genetic complex that it's part of. And so we're in the process of setting that up, what's going to happen in May 2023, we've had overwhelmingly positive response from like super duper researchers, you know, for initially we were like, well, you know, are they going to go for it? And then, you know, these rock stars from Dana Farber and St. Jude and Sloan Kettering and MD Anderson. I mean, they're all the ones that are into this. are like really into it and really into being able to spend time. They know about one another's work, but to be able to spend time, Together, trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? We've known about this for 25 years. It was first discovered in the context of these pediatric rhabdoid tumors, but we've made no progress. Yeah, you know, how do we move the needle forward? And so that's something that I do every day with Ella because there's it, it, it requires it's a it's a big thing we've bitten off and we don't know what we're doing because we're you know, we're just like regular old people. <laughs> We're learning every day and <laughs> we're very dedicated to it and and we're going to make it happen.
1: And it is a beautiful thing that you can do with Ella. And it's it is very true that a lot of times people are maybe duplicating efforts or they're working on something and someone else has already kind of figured that part out. Mm-hmm. And if you can communicate, that is really, really helpful you know, just to be able to kind of understand and then, you know, you can have a new starting point in some ways. Yeah. Right.
2: And to get, to get people on the same page. I mean, it's complicated yeah. because I know, you know, people don't necessarily like to share their research and this and that, but we're trying to, that's why we want to do it in the form of a conference, get them all together in this hotel, great place in the South mm-hmm. of France and feed people nicely and have it pleasant and, you know, moments that aren't work where they can actually create real connections on a human level as well. Too. Mm-hmm. So we'll see where we'll see where that goes.
1: Oh, that's just beautiful. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, and I love that you can do it with her.
2: Yeah, she's so much. Just-
1: that's just what you need, right? You need to be, find a little bit of purpose for your grief and something you can do
2: with your child. I, I
1: know that's what the podcast does for me. And, you know, it's, it's just a beautiful beautiful making
2: something positive out of something that is just so horrible yeah. so so horrible but yeah. something that can maybe one day help somebody make, make other people not have to suffer this so to make it not all in vain and
1: yeah maybe you know never know maybe someday a little bit down the road someone will come up with some sort of new cure and treatment and they'll say, you know what, it was that conference that I went to back in 2023 in the South of France that did it
2: all.
1: (laughs) So thank you so much, Cassie, for sharing Ella with us and your story. And I just find it wonderful and amazing.
2: And thank you to you. And I also want to thank all the other mothers that have come and talked about their children because I'm. I, I'm sure we all feel this way. It's just, it's truly a lifesaver. Yeah. What you've done is just amazing, absolutely amazing. Well, thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, or would like to support the podcast, please leave a five star rating and comment. To help financially. You can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.